Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Good morning to our North site. And if you're watching us anywhere in the world, we're so glad that you are choosing to be with us virtually today. We've got your Bible uh, this morning. We'd love you to again turn to First Peter. We're going to be ending this very, very profound series for our community called uh, Living Hope. A few weeks ago, I went to my eye doctor to get my eyes sort of looked at. It was that yearly or bi-yearly checkup. And I don't know if you've done that recently. I don't know if you actually have glasses, but I think we've all had that experience or seen it where you're sitting in the doctor's office and as you're, as you're sitting there, he makes you look at a wall far away and there's a bunch of letters on it. Have you done this before? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? And it's A, F, G, and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and he or she is testing how good your eyesight is. And then you come to that second last line and that very last line and you're not sure if it's an F, a Q, or a P and you're trying really hard, but you really aren't sure, and he begins or she begins to truly understand how you see. Then after he did that with me, we looked at sort of my prescription, and a few weeks later, I got some new glasses. And it was that moment where I got the new glasses. I took my old glasses off. I put my new glasses on, and there was that moment of adjustment. Everything seemed much clearer than it was a few seconds earlier. Number one, it's because I actually had a new prescription, but it was more than that. I realized how beat up my glasses were. Do you know what I'm talking about if you have glasses? When you first get glasses, you're so careful with them, and you've got that little soft cloth, and you've got the case, and later it's like sweaters and snot. No, you know, you don't care. And when I looked at my old glasses, I realized I had chewed them. There were scratches all over them. And when I put on these new glasses, it was like I saw absolutely clear. Now, what's interesting in both of those examples that many of us have experienced before, whether you're looking and it's the test or you get your new glasses, we were able to see before. Things were blurry or scratched or there was a bunch of stuff over the glasses, but we were still able to see. But when we got a new prescription and got new glasses, we moved from seeing in a blurry way to seeing in a crystal clear way. That is the image I want to leave us as a family as we end this First Peter series. Most of us being here are believers. We're followers of Jesus. Some of us seekers, others of us skeptics. But for we who've walked with Jesus for months or years or decades, we have seen Christ and we have seen reality as it is. But First Peter has done something like no other book in the last few years. It has shown us how blurry and how scratched and how out of focus many of our worldviews were and are when it comes to a normal Christian life. Now, many people are celebrating in our church because now they're seeing life as it should be through the lenses of 1 Peter. Others of us are not celebrating. Actually, we're quite upset or struggling because we're realizing that the normal Christian life is not what maybe we thought it was or what we were taught. The tension of this whole book is found in the very first verse. It's where we started weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Peter says this, to God's elect, and then he calls us exiles in the exact same breath. See, that's the tension of all of 1 Peter, and actually this is the tension of the whole Christian life. Yes, you're elected and loved and called, and your faith is secure, and you have living hope, and you have joy, and resurrection is guaranteed, and you're forgiven, and you're a child of God, and no one can take your salvation. All of that is true. 
And yet at the same time, Peter says, though you are elected, you are also, we also are exiles. That means we're refugees. We are temporary residents in this world. This world is our home, isn't our home, but is our home. And he says, and suffering and temptation and persecution and submission are all part of the deal. So it's like salt water and spring water, joy and sorrow, hope and doubt, death and resurrection, and a call for a radical new community in the middle of that tension. It's like near the end of the letter, Peter comes as an old wise man and sits with us. I've used that illustration, sitting across a table with us, maybe having a coffee. And as the picture has become shockingly clear, it's like Peter says to our community, God says through his spirit, okay, stop. I know that everything I've said has actually been a lot. I know it's a lot to take in. I know that maybe it's violated some of the presuppositions you've had about the Christian life. And I know it's a lot to take in. So I just want to take a moment and I want to tell you this next line. I I want you to hear this at this critical moment before I keep going. Because I'm actually going to tell you a few more things that may disturb you, but also are going to help you in the end. So he says, you know what? I just want everyone to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus is alive, Peter has argued and believes and has experienced, so you can actually talk to him. And Jesus is not just small L love. Jesus is the author of love. Jesus is love because he is part of the Trinity, which has forever been in love. So he really does understand what it means to care, and he cares for you. Jesus is present. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is loving. And so do you notice this, church? He invites us to cast all A-L-L, all our anxiety on him. We are called and commissioned and commanded. Have you thought about this? We are commanded as Christians to burden Jesus Christ. We are commanded to make sure that he is loaded down with the stuff of our life. He says, cast all your worry, cast all your concern, cast all your unease, all your apprehension, all your fear, all your pain, all your angst, all your disease. Cast everything that rips at your soul on Jesus. The image comes from throwing cloaks on a donkey. And this is what the images literally list out everything that causes you anxiety, panic, and fear. Write it on a list and start to systematically put it on the shoulders of Jesus. Now, why is Peter saying this? Because Peter is writing to churches that are about to or have begun to go through real formal persecution. And he is basically saying, you cannot handle life, let alone the storm that's about to engulf you. So you must know, first and foremost, at your core, on this Valentine's Day, one thing. Jesus' love can never be overcome. Jesus' love will never stop. And he has given us the privilege to put our burdens on his shoulders and share the load with him. He does not want us to be overcome by anxiety. This comes right out of Jesus' own teaching. We taught about it. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, and what you're going to wear. Is life more than food and the body more than clothes? It was that old famous Anglican bishop, Bishop Ryle, who preached over a hundred some years ago, do not be over careful and over anxious. Prudent provision for the future, preparing for the future is right. But wearing, corroding, self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. 
Let's not, be, let's not forget that there's a huge difference when struggling with worry and being free with worry. There's no call here to live some escapist life. Jesus promised us something, that we will have many troubles in this world. Trouble, hardship, and pain. There's no escapism if you follow Jesus. See, when the kingdom of God comes into our life, we don't get to run away actually from suffering. We walk through it. The whole theme of 1 Peter is joyful, living hope in suffering. Our life is lived in a broken world. It's marred by sin, the demonic worldliness, and the decision of others. We will have trouble in this world. But as we walk through this life, we do not and we must not be marked by worry. Having our lives all about either securing and holding on to what will pass away and or having things out of our own control consume our soul. Jesus, remember, said, stop, slow down, look. Let me show you what I mean. See that bird over there? He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than those birds? See that bird? No hypertension, none. No stress-based diseases in them because they do not worry. And oh, by the way, they're not lazy and they're not inactive. They work very hard. This is Jesus' point which inspired Peter's very call to us. Yes, birds die. And yes, birds get eaten. Many of you are about to do that at Swiss Chalet very soon. You're going to participate in their death. I'm sorry, it's true. And yes, birds can die of starvation. But this is an illustration. Jesus is saying, if my father, even in a fallen world, cares so much for his lower creation, are you not so much more valuable than a sparrow as a human being made in the image of God, let alone a child of God as a Christian? Jesus says, can any of you, by worry, add one single hour to your life? Can have you, no matter how much you worry, can it make you an inch taller? Can it gain you time back? Can it actually reverse your history? Can it secure your future? Can it make you grow? Can it add to the quality of your life? If the very center of your life is your walk with Jesus, is your faith built up and strengthened and, and birthed out of worry? No. Actually, this type of unhealthy worry leads you away from faith and leads you away from freedom. Actually, worry like this leads you to bow down and kiss and trust in other people, yourself, things or ideas. It leads you to build up treasure here. It leads you to make your pain or anxiety or your persecution stronger than Christ. See, Peter says when persecution and pressure comes and when suffering comes, the proper response is not fear, but trust. And so we cast all our cares on him. Peter's writing now the end of this letter. The last page is turning. Like an amazing book, this author chooses the very last few moments to tie all the strings together. He answers now fully the questions he's been posing to us now for weeks. Why would, why would I submit? Why would I humble myself? Why would I live like the end is near? Why would I cast all my cares on Jesus? Why? And this is what Peter's about to say to us. Because what is happening around you and to you and with you is actually larger and more consuming than many of you choose or actually do know. It is like Peter pulls the veil back and gives his audience the full picture. See, speaking to persecuted churches, he's not addressing all suffering, but persecution. He says this. The suffering that you're going through is not random. It's not like just an earthquake happens out of the blue. No, no. This is not like a random drive-by shooting and everyone's getting killed. 
The suffering is real and it's evil and it's wrong, but the source of your suffering is actually not maybe what you think. Peter leans in even more closely and he says these words. Be sober, be of sober mind, be alert, pay attention, be self-controlled. Wake up, see reality for what it is. Don't fall asleep at the wheel at this moment. So much is at stake, so much more is going on. It is like Peter is begging churches 2,000 years ago not to miss Jesus, not to reject Jesus, and not fall asleep. See, I'm sure as he was penning these words as an old man, be alert, do not fall asleep. His mind forced himself. It rushed back to one of the darkest moments in his own life. You know the story, many of you. Passover had just happened. Jesus was in the upper room. He had just said that one of the inner core would betray him. Judas stood up and left and prepared to murder Christ and set up the environment for it. Jesus says, I've got to go now and invites three people to come pray with him. It's what we will walk through in a few weeks in Good Friday. This is the beginning of the end, which will lead to the greatest of beginnings. Mark records it like this in Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Stay here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. As they walked along further, Jesus could not keep it together. This is what the scriptures say. Jesus was straught. I am sure he began to cry or shake or having trouble walking. I wonder if Peter runs up. All three don't understand. Is he okay? Is he having a mental breakdown? I've never seen Jesus like this before. I mean, where's the miracle worker? And where's the teacher with no fear? And where's the one who took on the religious leaders like it was nothing? And where's the guy who faced the demonic head to head and won every time? Where's the guy who rose people from the dead? Peter, I am sure, wanted just to say, stop it. Just You're scaring us. You're overreacting. You're the leader. And you're the rabbi and you're the Messiah. You're our rock in times of trouble. I mean, if you could feed 5,000 people, what you're facing cannot be that bad. The faith of this three begins to weaken. Something begins to gnaw at their soul. Now watch the connection to 1 Peter. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed to the Father that if it was possible that this hour might pass from him. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And look who he speaks to. Simon, Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch just for one hour? Watch and pray. Be alert, be awake, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch. Be awake, be aware, be alert, because what you're about to face in this garden is a choice and a testing and a shifting and a sifting of your loyalties. This is not just about a coming betrayal. This is not even just about the cross. See, you need to understand, Peter, that the kingdom of darkness is afoot to kill me and to stop the church before it is born. This is a spiritual attempt at a spiritual abortion to kill a movement before it can be born and spread all over the earth. Jesus says you must pray to overcome the temptation you're about to face. 
Again, the Lord's Prayer is encapsulated. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Only the power of God can move Peter and James and John towards God and his will. When we rely on us or programs or flesh or ability, we fall. He says that Jesus went back and prayed again, and then he returned another time. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. What was seen in the physical is actually the reflection of the spiritual. They're unable to see, unable to comprehend, unable to join. When Jesus speaks, they are speechless. What a contrast. Catch this this morning. Jesus is wrestling with coming persecution and he's struggling and he's engaging with God. I cannot handle this. I cannot. Is there any other way that this could be dealt with? And when he comes back, he finds this group not struggling or wrestling or being loyal. He finds them tired and sleeping and unaware. This is the very moment that inspired years later Peter to write this call to this group of churches. Peter says to this group of churches, I have been there more than you understand. Jesus was wrestling and I was sleeping. Now Jesus is amazing. He's love and he's restorative and he's forgiving. He personally restored me after I didn't just fall asleep, but I gave up and gave in and ran away. But you local churches, you're going to be tempted at this moment to sleep too and to run away. And to hide, you are going to be given the opportunity to portray the Jesus that you do know and that you do love and that you have been baptized into. What have I told you already in 1 Peter 4, 17? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Peter says, why am I telling all of you this at this moment? Well, what was unseen in that garden that night is still on the move. It's still trying to kill and stomp out and destroy and break down the ongoing work of Jesus. See, church, the real source of persecution, not all suffering, but one major source of suffering and the real source of persecution, the real reason why Christians are mocked, the real reason why people cannot comprehend the gospel, the real reason why there's misunderstanding, the real reason for your suffering is that there actually is a devil. And there are many, 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 many angels that fell with him. They are real. It is not fairy tale. They are organized. They are wiser than you think. They've been in existence before we humans probably were. Can you imagine this? Because they are not absolutely sort of fantasy. They are committed. They are organized. They are resisting God's will, stopping the good news of Jesus. They are committed to destroying his people, his church, his witness, and they will use anyone or anything to destroy the good news of Christ. Be alert and of sober mind, Peter says, at the end of his book. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil, that great fallen angel, the one of great power, your great adversary, your opponent, your accuser, your slanderer, that false angel of light, that so-called God of this world, that ancient serpent that spoke directly to Adam and Eve, our foundational parents. He is alive, he is real, and he is out hunting And he is out hunting the only people that threaten his ownership, his power, his grip, his systems, and his control. See, the only person the devil really is sincerely worried about are local, everyday, normal Christians because they are filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ. They are filled and they walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that has defeated him, and we are the carriers of the one that has defeated him. It's what Paul said in Romans, I mean, Ephesians 6, right? 
Our struggle isn't against human beings. It's against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we went through Ephesians, we learned this. This word struggle is a war image and it's a wrestling image. It means hand-to-hand combat. It comes from the world of sports. Wrestling is one of the closest quartered experiences you can have with another human being in sports. And what he is saying is the war is real, the war is not a fairy tale, the war is personal, the war is corporate, the war is global, the war has to be acknowledged, understood, embraced, and never run from. This war has been happening since Genesis chapter 3. Actually, it's probably been happening since Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Now here's the thing we need to declare as we get into this part of the conversation. Is the devil defeated? Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. When Jesus rose physically from the dead, we have the greatest picture in Colossians 2.15. Jesus, I love this verse. Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The devil and all of his horde had to walk behind Jesus as the victorious king and general and admit they have forever lost. Amen. But is the devil toothless? Not on your life. I am so tired as a pastor of hearing theologians and pastors give their congregations unbiblical worldviews on this and setting up their churches for failure. He is defeated, yes, but he is alive and active and he has all his teeth still. We are living between D-Day and V-Day, but the battle is real in the middle. Christians, you let the scriptures speak and define reality, not what you've heard or what you want. Satan cannot steal your salvation. Amen. He cannot stop you from being physically resurrected from the dead. Amen. He can never remove the Holy Spirit. You are sealed until the day of redemption. Amen. He can never make you lose your living hope. Amen. But he can seduce you back, and he also can attack the local church. Peter says he is looking for someone to devour. The word devour is graphic. Have you ever watched a documentary and seen a lion take down its prey and start eating the prey while it's still alive? The word in the original language to devour is to destroy its prey in one gulp. The devil wants to annihilate you. He wants to destroy this church. He hates this church. He hates Calvary Baptist. He hates Hebron Christian Reform. He hates Pickering Pentecostal. He hates the sanctuary. He hates any church that proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is the moment of truth for us. Because the game called faith is lost or won based on realistic biblical expectations. Notice Peter says that Christians can be devoured. Now, here's the question. How does the devil devour a Christian? How does he drink you in and take you out? I'd start taking notes right now. The first thing he does is he tempts us. And where is he going to tempt us as a church? The first thing he's going to do is he's going to come along to our church as we keep growing and more people keep coming to faith. And he's going to say, do you remember all that submission stuff in 1 Peter? It's crap. Run from it. Don't submit at home and don't submit at church and don't submit in your workplace and don't submit with the government. It's all wrong. It's too dangerous. It will cost you too much. Your rights are more important than submission. Now, why does he want to resist submission? Let me tell you why. 
Because he was defeated by the greatest act of submission when Jesus, who never stopped being God, submitted himself fully to the Father and actually submitted himself to our sinfulness. That is where the devil got beat. And he knows that if a church gets serious about submission, there is no place for pride. And where there's no place for pride, there's no room for the devil. He will say submission is the worst thing you can do because he knows that the greatest power of the Spirit is released in the local church when submission actually forms our worldview. The devil's going to come along and say not only just the submission stuff, he's going to come and say, look, I think you should go back to what you've been saved from. Do you remember what Peter said halfway through the book? Have you not spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do? debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. The devil's going to come along or one of his minions, he's going to say, no, 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 it's not that bad. Come on, it's okay, you need to be free, you need to relax a little. Debauchery, living without moral restraint, sexual morality, physical violence, fast and free living, riotous living, wenching, whoring, wildness, gluttony. You need this. You deserve this. What happens in Vegas does stay in Vegas. It's not that bad. Get buzzed, get drunk, get high. You need to relax. It's a pretty tough environment. You deserve this. You need to be free. Go sit in front of video games for hours and murder people. Go watch Deadpool. It's just entertainment. Lusts, passions, longing after what is forbidden. It's not forbidden. You're just human. You're born this way. Any sexual act outside of marriage is formed by God in Genesis. Come on. For Moses, for Jesus, for Paul, biblical writers saying that the sexual starting point and end point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. Come on, this isn't God's want or design or gift. He's going to say, that's not right. That's not right at all. You don't have all the facts. See, those ancient people were bigots. Paul actually didn't know what he was talking about. They're all ancient anyway, so they didn't have psychology like we do. You have a right to express how you want, when you want, where you want, and to be who you want in any environment. You actually have the final say. Detestable idolatry? Oh, come on. There's no such thing. It can't be that Jesus is the only way. I mean, what about all those good people in every other religion? Come on, you're not going to get burned by doing some of that spiritual self-help stuff. Deepak Chopra, he's good for your soul. Do a little tarot cards or psychic readings or crystals or new age or witchcraft or horoscopes. Ouija board, it's made from Mattel for goodness sakes. It can't be that bad. Reincarnation readings, ghosts, haunted houses, levitation, palm reading, seances, tea leaves. It's, you're not going to get burned. You just need info. You just got to talk to your dad who passed away. Don't you deserve that? You have the final say over sex, money, and power. You define them and you should use them the way you want. Sin is not really sin. Don't, don't ask God about those things. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage. Your fear and excuses actually are really important. You don't have the time to do Christian community or spiritual. Like, look at your schedule. You know you're so tired. Listen, I've got a great answer for you. Just make church optional. It's just one out of many important things in your life. God isn't what you love or seek or worship or serve or support. It's okay. Don't like part of the Bible? It's really okay. I mean, it's just, it's an inspired book, but it's not that great. Just change it or ignore it or cut it out or reinterpret. I mean, Paul couldn't have been right on this stuff. See, this is how he devours you, alive, one piece at a time. And we start giving in as Christians again and again. What did we learn in the Ephesians series? This is the most uncomfortable moment in the sermon right now. Ephesians 4.26, remember Paul used anger as an example 
In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul is saying if you don't, if you don't continually watch habitual sin, you as a Christian will give a demonic influence into your life. Do you see that word foothold? Here's what it means in Greek. Area, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, room. That is to live inside your body, will, and emotion. Oh, yes, you're a Christian, but this can show you that through willful rebellion or unknown rebellion, you can actually give the demonic absolute rank in your life to inhabit you inside over time. Oh, you're saved. Verse 30, you still have the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. But when you begin to habitually give into sin and open the door, the evil one will walk and the Spirit of God will be grieved, you actually yield yourself internally to the enemy. As I preached in that series, many, many Christians who don't even believe this is possible have Trojan horses in their lives, in their families, and in their churches. A demon in me but doesn't own me? Oh, absolutely. How many of the demonic are crawling around right now as I'm preaching? or in our connect groups, or in our families, or in our worship services, or in our programs, because we played with fire, or our parents did, and we didn't think it would have any supernatural consequence. Let me say this this morning. I'm not trying to scare anyone. This is war, and this is real, and it's not fair, and that's how war functions. Just because you think this cannot happen, or it does not fit into your theology, or you don't really believe in demons, or you don't feel it's never happened to you, does not mean it will not happen to you, or it has not already happened to you. The Peter comes and he says, number one, he will tempt you never to submit. He will call you back to habitually get involved in the things you've been saved from so he can actually open a door. He'll never own you again, but he can grieve the spirit and stop your influence and cause all sorts of chaos internally. And number three, if he can't do those things to you, then he'll accuse you to your face. He will come and he will try to destroy the living hope by going after your identity in Christ. Remember all the things that Peter have said over us in this amazing book? There are over 20 profound, life-changing statements that Peter gave persecuted Christians to know that they know that they know that they are owned. Here is what you will know when the devil is speaking. He will say, you're not elected. You're not chosen. You're not foreknown. You're not holy. Look at your life. Jesus hasn't loved you or covered you or forgiven you. Born again? I don't think so. Resurrection guaranteed? No, no, you should fear death in the coffin. Are you sure about Jesus? Your faith, it says, is secure and guarded by Jesus. I wouldn't really trust him. Look around. This is critical. Look around. It sure doesn't seem to me that God is redeeming the suffering and the brokenness of your life in this world to make you more like Jesus. Actually, I think Jesus has abandoned you. I think Jesus is hurting you. I think Jesus is making you a punching bag. I think you should walk away. It would be easier to walk away from Jesus because actually it's just too difficult. More blessed than the prophets because they predicted Jesus but you've met him. What does that help in everyday life? You're not a chosen person, a royal priesthood, a holy nation saying you belong to God. You've been saved out of darkness into wonderful light. No, no, I still own you. You don't really believe you have direct access to God. God doesn't love you. You're not God's child. And you say, oh, no, I am. Fine, well, you're not his favorite child then. Look at all the other Christians that have so much more and have it so much better than you. 
Satan will lead you to doubt God's goodness, his sovereignty, his kindness, and suddenly he will overwhelm you with emotions like fear, self-hate, hopelessness, immoral anxiety, and panic. He will say the Bible cannot be the last say on faith, life, and practice. He will bring up your past and present. He will accuse you to your face. He will accuse you before God. And here's, here's why he does all this. He wants you to take your eyes off the perpetual, perfect work of Jesus. He wants you to worship other gods. He actually wants you to elevate your pain and your suffering or your pleasure to have more authority than what Scripture says about you. Lastly, and here's the moment that's really difficult for us as Westerners. Even if we stand and we hold to our living hope in the presence of darkness, even if we know that we know and we say no to him, even if we do not go back and we're quick to confess our sin and we don't give ground, even if we do all that, the Bible says we still can suffer persecution. See, the Bible is clear that the devil inspires and uses people and politics and systems of thought to oppose God and his people. If you've grown up in church and have been taught that because you're a Christian, you cannot be touched by the devil, what Bible are you reading? What church history have you heard of? What do you say to the 7,100 Christians that have now been formally documented as being murdered in 2015 just because they were followers of Jesus? What did Jesus himself say in the book of Revelation? Jesus spoke to a local church just like C4. And these are the words of Jesus. And he says this to a local church. Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid. I'm sure glad he says that. Of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the devil is going to put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful. What? Even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Remember, I was teaching at a graduate level in a seminary on this issue. And I said these words. And these are pastors and theologians and psychologists and spiritual directors. And I read this verse and a woman came up and she said, no. I said, no to what? I said a lot of things. She said, no. I said, what? That? No. I said, it's true. No, it's not. It can't be true. I said, it is true. She said, but that violates everything I've been taught my whole life. I said, yes, but what you've been taught is not biblical. Resurrection is guaranteed, and hope is guaranteed, and power is guaranteed. James 4, 7, we submit ourselves to God, we resist the devil, he can flee. But this is not an illusionary, phony war. This is real. And so Peter comes along as a long-term veteran who has, by the way, profound joy. And let me say this. Everyone hear this this morning. And has no fear of the evil one. And he says these words. He says, so this is what we do. We resist him. We stand firm in the faith, our most holy faith. Because we know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. How do we stand? We do not reject Jesus. How do we stand? We do not give in to temptation. How do we stand? If we give in to temptation, we confess our sins. How do we stand? We choose not to give the devil a foothold. How do we stand? We suffer rather than sin. How do we stand? We choose to give up our pleasure, our life itself for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Peter says, you are not alone. Christians all over the world are going through this. 
God has not left them alone or you alone or us alone. Our chief shepherd has not abandoned us. And so he writes this glorious verse. But if you're feeling what I'm feeling in this room right now, we are beginning to understand that the safety and our protectionism as overly middle class North Americans is not a biblical guaranteed truth. Peter says to these educated and uneducated, loving Christians, he says, look, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for just a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. The God of all grace, Paul says, the God of all peace, the God of all comfort is with us. We have been called into Jesus. Now, church, I know this is a lot, but please, please hear me this morning. Forget all the theological debates you've heard about predestination and election and calling. It's a different conversation. Something happens. But here's the point. Do you know why Peter spends so much time speaking to suffering Christians about their election? Because here is what he is declaring to people who cannot control their situation and injustice seems stronger in the moment. He says sickness does not have the final say. And sin does not have the final say. The devil cannot take this away. Not one of his demons can do this. Your family, your mind, chronic pain, family trouble, persecution, death or loss or struggle can never take away or overcome your election into Jesus Christ. He roots our only hope in a calling we never asked for, in a Savior who came for us when we could not get to him, and in a spirit that may even be grieved but will never leave us. He says, you've got to remember in the darkest of times that you are going to suffer for a small period of time, but all this loss will be made right in the place that counts forever. He says, yes, there will be suffering for a period, But in the long term, I will restore you in eternity. See, the chief shepherd comes and he promises in part now and fully in the life to come that he will restore us, establish us, confirm us, mend us, and fully attend us. He's going to make us strong. God's going to make our faith forever firm. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is going to make us fully secure. He's going to make us whole. He's going to help us stand and he's going to build us. That is why Peter ends his book with this defiant, praiseworthy doxology where he simply says these words, so to him be the power forever and ever. Notice he doesn't say glory and honor and power. He just says power, dominion, to Jesus who is actually stronger than death and to Jesus who's stronger than the devil and to Jesus who's stronger than our anxieties and fears and to Jesus who's stronger and watching our persecutors, to Jesus be all glory to him because he is going to judge all things and he's going to make all things right in our life because that's going to ripple into eternity. Anyone should say amen at this moment. This is the hope we have. See, Peter is not yelling. He's just saying, people, prepare yourself. Now, am I declaring that this is going to happen to this church? No, I'm just going where the text goes. But Peter is absolutely clear that Jesus is one, and we should not fear the evil one, but the war is real in the middle. 
Well, at the very end of it, it's sort of like he does all that, sort of overwhelms us, and he says, okay, I'm sort of done. I just want to give some shout-outs and some end credits. You're like, what? And he says, yeah, I just want to say, hey, by the way, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, uh, I've written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Oh, so stand firm in it. And she who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, she says, what's up? Sends greetings. And so does my spiritual son, Mark. Uh, greet with each other with a kiss of love. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Woo. Uh, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace out. I'm out. Now, um, this is a whole nother message by the way, on amazing reconciliation in the local church. And I have no time to do it other than this. Silas, check his story out in Acts. He's in, this woman says, how are you? It's not a woman, it's the local church. They're in Babylon, which is metaphor for Rome. Here's the crazy thing we haven't talked about this whole series. Peter has been writing from the heart of the beast the whole time. He's writing this letter from Rome under Nero, and it's already happening there, and he's saying it's coming to you. And then he says, oh, my spiritual son, John Mark, says, hi, John Mark, you can read his story, Paul, Barnabas, but he wrote this little thing maybe you've read before, the Gospel of Mark, sort of important. Yeah, that's that guy right there, okay? And, and he says, by the way, the church is with you. So as we come to the end of this series, and Peter actually ends on a pretty wild note, in my opinion, what do we see? Well, here's a few things before we uh, take communion and celebrate the victory of Christ. Number one, You say, well, how do I respond to something like this? It's a lot of, okay. First thing, every time that God moves in great power, he always says this, do not fear. Do not fear. So the first thing many of you should do is pray that you'd see reality for what it is. The enemy's real. He's not under every bush. He's probably under every fourth, (laughs) but he's there. And the call is to stand. Don't be afraid. Uh, Rebellion, neglect, and ignorance is how we lose this battle. Don't run into battle naked. It doesn't go so well. Peel back the veil and pray a simple prayer to Jesus who's in control. Jesus, I actually want to see reality for what it really is so I can stand and have joy. Can I also say this too? Um, Keep your eye on Christ. Like he's dealt with all this. And he's going to be with us no matter what happens. He's the true line of Judah. This other guy's just an imposter. But he's real. Remember the words of Jesus Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Peter has written to a church in very difficult times, and maybe that's your story, or maybe you're in a good season. But the core verse is 1 Peter 1.3. Remember it? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is directly connected to the resurrection. And let me just end actually where I began so many weeks before. What does living hope really look like even in the middle of suffering? Here it is. Living hope gives us destiny as Christians that no one else gets. We know we have real hope. We don't cross our fingers or suppose. We're not sort of made dumb in our suffering. We don't wish. We know because of the resurrection of Jesus and because we are in him and we have been loved by him and we have relationship through him, we know that since the resurrection is true, Jesus has the final say and there is real hope. Our Savior is alive, and so is our hope, and so is our faith, and so is our future. We're going to be vindicated, and all things are going to be made right. And as Peter said, you may suffer for a little while, but never forget, if this is life, that's eternity. We have destiny because actually we know that actually all things are made right. Second of all, living hope gives you dignity as a human being. 
And in our world, we desperately need dignity. We have our identity, Peter has taught us through this whole series. We've been called to root our very identity in the work of God. Not in our own work, not in our family background, not in our history, not in our education, not in our gender. We root our identity at its core in the work of God. And notice this as a human being. Self-respect and self-esteem comes always from a solid, built, secure identity. And you can never separate identity from dignity. And what has Peter taught us? Peter said, in the best of times and the worst of times, your living hope will not be moved. So root your worth and your identity and your value in what God has said to you, over you, and in you. No one can steal what God has done in you. No matter your life or economic position, no matter your gender, no matter what you've gained or will gain or lose, what God has made in you is secure, it's real, and it lasts forever. Christians have the ultimate form of dignity because we live under the love of God. Living hope gives us destiny. And living hope gives us this amazing dignity. And living hope gives us determination. Much of the time in our world when real bad things happen, human beings have an unbelievable way to survive. But we are not just saying, pull up your bootstraps and we hope it makes, you know, we hope you make it. No, it's different than that. I was shocked. I said this in week one, and I just want to end the series by saying what I said in week one. I find it so unbelievable that the only book in the New Testament whose main theme is hope is written to a suffering community. It's like the contradiction of reading Paul in Philippians, and his whole conversation is joy in suffering. Why do they do this? Why did they write like this? And let me just end with this. So much of the time, Suffering becomes the greatest place to display hope. So much of the time we as Christians think we need the right words and the right arguments to defend our most holy faith. And at Easter we're going to do that in that Smoke and Mirror series. And, and that's needed. But can I just say this? When hope in suffering is displayed... And when hope and injustice is displayed, and when hope beyond circumstances is displayed, even in the smallest way, it is an overwhelming, jarring, and shocking experience to unbelievers. Actually, it's one of the greatest places for evangelism. Because if we, in the best of times and the worst of times, are held and cared for by God. And people around us go through the exact same thing. See, Christians and non-Christians, we go through the exact same stuff. And we, though we are still broken the same way, are able to declare something beyond circumstance. People will be deeply attracted to Jesus. The greatest edge we have in evangelism is not our arguments or our smoke and lights or our invitational style, though all good, is when life is dangerous or falls apart and we are as human as our neighbor. But then we can declare that hope is real and the resurrection is true and someone is sitting in our darkness and we get to burden him. And he's not a fairy tale, he's alive.
Peter gives this and says to us, O church, take hope. O church, do not look around and drown. Look up and know that the end is near and all things will be made right. When you suffer for a little while, yes, all things will be, but also in the middle of this, never forget if this is where you're at, one of the greatest gifts you can show a world that ends with itself, you can say, no, 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 no. I have met someone who transcends the worst darkness and he wants to meet you too. This is a normal Christian life. This are these. This is the glasses of real faith. And this is why our movement has kept spreading for 2,000 years. Because politics and war and disease and death never beat us in the end because the one who lives in us has beaten all them already. So let us take a moment, because we've had pauses in our service today of silence. Just take a moment. And then let's pray together as we prepare for communion. Jesus Christ, O great and mighty God, who has conquered that devouring lion. Jesus, who has overcome all sickness and death and disease. To you we come as North Americans, privileged with comfort and money and protection. And when we hear things like this, it is jarring to us. But our simple prayer is, Jesus, that your hope would transcend and your hope would be deeply rooted and our election would be sure, and that this church would be faithful to the very end, and that we would be able to demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ that even pierces the greatest darkness. Our glory to be God the Father who loved us before we loved him. Our glory to Jesus Christ who thought of us when he died. Our glory to the Holy Spirit who even when we sin and we grieve him, he refuses to leave us and makes us like Christ and is our eternal spring of living hope. Amen, amen, amen. We're going to respond with communion. And so it's very appropriate, isn't it? On Valentine's Day to take communion after a message like that. Here's why. Because at communion, we as the faith community remember Jesus won. Amen? We remember that he's conquered all this stuff. We remember he's never left us. We remember he's going to make all things right. The whole summary of what I've just preached is found in the symbols of communion. And so the scriptures are clear that when we gather together, we are to celebrate and remember and anticipate the coming of Christ and celebrate the death of Christ. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you love Christ and he's your Savior and Lord, you take it. Take a moment to confess sin if you need to or unbelief. It says if you actually need to reconcile with someone, Maybe you should go do that. It says if you're a Christian and actually you are not walking with him, he invites you back. If you refuse to walk with him, it says don't take it. And the scriptures also say that if you are not a Christian yet, not take this because it does not symbolize the one you've met. But in these next few moments, as we wrestle through a very difficult and large sermon, just celebrate hope, reaffirm living hope, And some of you, this is going to be a decision of the will where you go, I choose to believe the scriptures over what I'm suffering right now. But let us together celebrate our cornerstone Christ who will never leave us or forsake us. So Holy Spirit, would you come now as we sing, lead us to Christ, Christ lead us to the Father. Amen.
Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.